Thanks, everybody. It's just a little bit afternoon. So we'll go ahead and get started. Today is uh, St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It's the third Monday of the month, so we're doing our lunchtime learning series call. Um, we do these every month on a topic of relevance for financial educators, and today we're going to talk about emergency savings. So today's call will be recorded and posted online as an MP3 file in the next uh, week or so. Um, if you're following along today, the, the website fyi.uwex.edu slash financial series, you'll find a brief for today, uh, which is on the topic of emergency savings. And so I will spend about the next um, 25 to 30 minutes talking about the topic of, of emergency savings and um, I definitely hold some time for some discussion among folks in the line as well. Um, I'm also going to talk about some of the implications of this emergency savings topic for educators and for education strategies. And so as you're listening today, if there's uh, things that you've done or ideas that you've had uh, that might be relevant to thinking about uh, emergency savings or might be a a way to work with audiences around the topic of of emergency savings, uh, I'd be great to hear about those as well. So um, on the website, you'll see the emergency savings link. There's a, a, a underscored blue link and that's to the PDF file that is the um, the brief. And so I will mostly be talking through this brief, this PDF document brief. There's a number of links both on the FYI website as well as in the PDF document itself. And so I'll, I'll be uh, taking tangents down those those uh, locations as well. So hopefully all that information is available for folks. I know there was one uh, link that wasn't working earlier, but I believe that's ironed out. I just tried it and it seems to be working. So all right, any questions before I begin? Okay, great. Um, so first I want to, I've talked a little bit about these data in the past, but there is a survey called the Financial Capability Survey by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, as it, I think it's mainly no, name, known as. FINRA is the, uh, the uh, organization that is in charge of supervising and policing people in the securities industry when someone violates FINRA rules, they pay fines that go into the uh, FINRA penalty fund. And then that penalty fund is used for a variety of different kinds of things, including investor education and um, work to um, promote uh, best practices in the field and avoid fraud and those kinds of things. But one of the things it does is, is it pays for this survey, which has been that was done in 2009 and then repeated again in 2012. And it's a survey of individuals across the United States. They actually do... Um, at least five or six hundred people in each state, not sometimes more. So it's a big panel or a big uh, sample. And we have enough people in the state of Wisconsin that we can actually report specifically on Wisconsin. And so if you've been to their website before, you can follow the link in the very first sentence of the brief. You can click on it and you can find Wisconsin on the map and you can click on it and you can look at data for the state of Wisconsin. Um, so things like paying bills on time and using non-bank borrowing products and credit cards and those kinds of things, their financial knowledge. Um, but specifically today, I want to talk about the, the question in here about having a rainy day fund, uh, which is how the survey talks about this concept of an emergency fund, about planning ahead um, to have set aside enough expenses, enough money to cover three months of expenses in the case of an emergency such as a sickness, job loss, or economic downturn. And, um, you know, I think Wisconsin is slightly uh, different relative to the 
U.S. in 2012, about um, uh, 38% of people have a rainy day fund compared to 40% in the U.S. overall. Um, and we've actually gone down a little bit from 2009 just by one percentage point, which might actually just be a measurement error. But, you know, still we're talking about one in three people um, who have a under four out of five people who have um, I'm sorry, uh, four to ten uh, people who don't have emergency who do have emergency funds. So it's it's a minority of people who have set aside three months of savings for an emergency, and this is pretty typical. Uh, you know, if you were to click on some other states, you would see similar patterns. Where rare is it that the majority of people actually have emergency funds set aside? Three months is is a high standard, and we'll we'll talk in a bit about you know is there a right number to think about. Um, but still, uh, this suggests that about two out of three people in the state, you know, a little less than that, are um, in a position where if something happened, they wouldn't be able to get by for, for three months. And this topic of emergency savings has become um, more and more uh, central, I think, to this um, broader discussion around asset building and savings. And for a long time, asset building and savings was discussed in the context of, you know, IDA funds for home ownership or uh, match savings that could help people start a small business or even just retiring, uh, saving through work for retirement. Uh, lots of different kinds of savings that we could talk about. There's been much less emphasis on unrestricted savings, savings that isn't earmarked for any specific task for buying a house or for retirement or for, say, for education or whatever. Um, on restricted savings, there are almost no programs to support. There is no IDA program just to have a cushion. Um, it's always for some specific purpose. So we don't have a lot of programs that are designed to encourage people just to have a cushion, some liquidity to get by. And we think that might matter. Um, so there's a, um, a research study in the field right now called the U.S. Financial Diaries, and there's a link to that both on the FYI website and the brief itself. And this Financial Diaries project is a set of interviews, really intensive interviews with over 300 households where somebody comes and meets with them just about every other week and goes through all their bills, goes through all their income, talks about what's come in, what's gone out, what they expected, what they didn't expect. And one of the things that, and these are all very low-income families, and in general, they're working but but low-income and poor families. And the main takeaway we can come from Moy with all this is that just volatility is a constant theme. That expenses are high one month and then lower the next month, then higher the next month, and you know just up and down seesaw in terms of expenses. And the same is true with income. You know, if annual income is maybe what uh, you know somebody thinks about from a uh, you know higher middle class kind of perspective. You know, how much do I make a year? Um, for families who are really on the edge, it's not even about how much they make a month, it's how much they have this week and what the expenses this week. And the sort of granularity of thinking about time and money spending over time um, becomes really important. And so in that context, having a little bit of liquidity, a little bit of cushion, a little bit of um, cash to take care of something in a pinch becomes really important. It's the difference between making rent or getting a car repair that allows you to stay at work or taking advantage of some special opportunity that comes along and having no resources versus having, say, $500 even in, you know, as I make a statement in the brief of a, in a coffee can, 
um, might be better uh, than some of the alternatives that people could be in where they have to go borrow from friends and family or for, from their foreman at work or from a payday lender, let's say palm, something of value to them. Um, so this idea of, of a small, unrestricted savings account, uh, again, isn't something that hasn't has gotten a lot of attention in terms of where programs are focused for lower-income people. But we know, based on the kinds of uh, research that we're seeing from the Fender data and from the Financial Diaries data, that um, these kinds of funds really can make a difference and that we probably should spend more time helping people think about uh, what it means to have a rainy day and how they can put aside some money just in case that contingency might arise. Oftentimes when we think about these kinds of funds, we think about liquidity, which you know maybe is a little more of a financy term than we think about regularly, but I think it's appropriate because the key is that it's something that you can turn to and get access to relatively quickly. Um, maybe not as fast as cash in your wallet, but if within a you know few days of something coming up, you have the ability to make ends meet. Liquidity is what drives people to use emergency credit sources. It's, you know, people at a pawn shop, almost by definition, are liquidity constrained. People who are um, getting out an auto title loan are liquidity constrained. People who are looking for a payday loan, a loan for even a few days, are liquidity constrained. So we know that this liquidity issue is something that people face, and sometimes on a regular basis. They know that they're going to be tight at some point in the month, and they have to figure out ways to make ends meet, and if they don't have the savings, then they can turn to credit markets or alternative ways to be able to raise funds if, if they are going to be able to meet those obligations that they have, whether it's the rent or some bill that they have to pay. Um, but we also know it's very hard to put aside even a small amount of money. You know, oftentimes you know, you'll read in the paper of, oh, if you just could put away $50 a week. Well, for many families, $50 a week is, is a lot. That might be their, their food budget or um, a big chunk of their food budget. And so, you know, we're not suggesting that the emergency savings account is so important that people shouldn't eat or they shouldn't feed their kids or they shouldn't buy gas for the car and be able to go to work. It's uh, Everything is obviously in the context of where the budgets are and what the resources are for a family. But all else equal, this is probably the most foundational activity in terms of savings that a family can, can engage in. And we think that it really matters for more than just um, a rainy day or an emergency, but it gives them the cushion to be able to take advantage of um, opportunities that might arise as well. So whether that's a, a negative thing that they have to deal with, like a car repair, or it's a positive opportunity like job training or some trip that they can go on that will give them an advantage in some other way. And so we don't want to just think about this as an emergency negative event rainy day, although that's certainly the the idea that most people have in their mind when they think about an emergency or a rainy day. It could also be a positive opportunity that otherwise you couldn't take advantage of or you'd have to tap some other form of liquidity like borrowing to be able to, to take advantage of. Um, so we can think about sort of three different forms of shocks of these um, occurrences that might affect a family's budget, that they might need this pool or pot of money or coffee can of money. Um, so one is that they have this unexpected expense, things that are hard to predict. I know I drive an old car. I know that sometimes old cars need repairs, 
but I don't know if I'm going to need a you know $75 muffler versus a or muffler repair versus a you know $1,200 head gasket replacement or some uh, something of that nature that's very expensive even from the the least cost provider of those services. Um, and then there's other things that I that I can't predict precisely, but I know are going to hit me in terms of variable expenses in the future. So I know that in the winter my heating bill will go up. I don't know how much. It might go from $200 to $400. It might go from $200 to $600. But I know it's going to get a lot bigger, and if I was forward thinking, I would have money put aside to basically smooth out those lumpy expenses in the future. So some of this is more unpredictable uh, than others, but still we, we know that there's these expenses that arise and we need some cushion or some liquidity to get through those things. And then the next thing, the next shock we can think about with families is a drop in income. And the drop in income could be a cut in pay, uh, where this is, you know, you used to make $12 an hour and now we're cutting your pay to 11 or, you know, some equivalent. Or if you work in an industry where you're uh, selling a commodity, the price of the commodity drops. Um, but for us at times, for for a lot of families, it's less about their wage rate changes. It's that their hours change. They used to get overtime. Now they don't. Um, they used to get 40 hours. Now they only get 30. Those kind of changes, which result in a, in a you know, not a, a devastating drop in income where they have no choice but to go look for another job or they become unemployed or go on unemployment, um, they still have some income coming in, but it's just not what it was, and now they have to really ratchet down their consumption to be able to make that happen. Other times it's very episodic. So generally I make some amount a month, but this month was a slow month, and the commissions weren't there, the hours weren't there. Next month will be better, and I just have to be able to get through this month. And so that's another kind of unpredictable, but over the long run, you know there will be months like that. And so having some cushion to be able to make those ends meet would be important. And then some of those these opportunities that come up. And so, you know, we can think of lots of examples of these where people say, oh, if I only had uh, a little bit of money, I could take advantage of this thing. And that, that thing might help me get a better job or get a, get to a better wage classification for the job that I do have or, you know, in other ways, uh, enrich where I'm at and have future benefits and payoffs. And the only other way for me to be able to afford to do that would be by borrowing. And so those, again, are hard to predict um, at any one point in time, but we know over the next two or three years, many of us will have those kinds of things that will arise and we'll wish that we had some, some money put away. Um, so, you know, the, the tough thing about a lot of these these issues is it's hard to know exactly what, what it's going to be, and it's very hard to know exactly when it's going to be. But we know vaguely there's going to be these shocks, these positive and negative shocks, that, that having $500 or $1,000 or, you know, maybe as much as three months of your income put aside would be um, helpful. It would allow us to be able to to smooth our spending or take advantage of opportunities that otherwise we wouldn't be able to take advantage of. You can think about this in some ways like in insurance. Um, you don't know if you're going to have a car accident or if something, a tree branch is going to fall in your house. Uh, you know, if it did happen, it would be expensive. And you know that there's some chance over your lifetime that something, some kind of accident or some foul weather event could happen. And so you take on insurance in case of that potential of that risk uh, happening. And 
in many ways, this rainy day fund or this liquidity or contingency fund that you put aside is like a, a self-insurance, putting aside money just in case something happens and it may be that there's enough in that fund to get you through whatever kind of unexpected um, opportunity or change in expense or drop in income you come across. Or maybe it's just the first place you tap and then you still end up borrowing from friends and family or from other sources, but you don't have to borrow as much or it allows you to leave more of the sort of extreme emergency funds that you might be able to tap on your credit card or other form of borrowing sort of on the side. And so it gives you just one more lever or one more form of insurance if something bad were to happen. And I think the big question for researchers has been, well, does small dollars really matter? You know, does it, if people who are relatively poor have four or five hundred dollars in emergency savings, is that really going to keep them from being poor? Well, the answer is no. I mean, obviously, uh, we measure poverty predominantly by income. And so it's not like a few hundred dollars is going to be the difference between somebody being poor and not poor. But with among, among people who are poor, Having this cushion, having a little bit of, of emergency savings or a rainy day fund, um, might be something that helps them manage a crisis when it happens. When that shock happens, it might be that they obviously have to deplete whatever savings they have, and it might be they still have to borrow, but it's not as stressful as if they didn't have that emergency fund or that rainy day fund. And so this might result in actual impact on families, and that's what this figure one shows. This is from data that the NEKC Casey Foundation uh, collected tracking families over about a decade period um, in a dozen cities around the United States. And if you look at families who reported having an emergency fund uh, in the first survey and then following up with them two or three surveys later, seeing the kinds of situations that they were in and how they were able to handle them, um, the people who had an emergency fund were less likely to say that they delayed filling a prescription for a medical, uh, for a medical prescription. Um, they're less likely to report that they couldn't pay the rent or utility bill. They're less likely to report having a utility disconnected. They're less likely to have their phone disconnected. They're less likely to um, show up on some of the food insecurity scales. Um, less likely to report having a repossession. So, Overall, these you know these various economic hardships I just described, they're less likely to experience any of them. Now, some of that is because they are, you know, by nature they're planning ahead and they're just more likely to less likely to have negative events happen to them. But this is controlling for income and assets and and all kinds of other things. So it's you know this really there's something specific about the emergency fund itself um, that seems to give people some cushion, some uh, backstop in case something occurs to them. Um, we think this is encouraging. It's obviously not proof positive, but it's encouraging that um, there really is something special about this emergency savings account and the, an account that people actually name and use uh, for an emergency when it, when it happens. Now, one of the questions I get a lot um, is somebody's working with a family and they have a lot of debt, especially credit card debt, um, maybe some other kinds of, of debt that they're in arrears on. And they're they're struggling. They're struggling to keep up with all that debt. Um, and there's a plan in which they could start to pay down that debt by paying more than the minimum payment um, and start to get ahead and start to pay down that debt. But it would mean not saving anything. And 
typically, if I, if I were to approach this from just sort of a rational economics perspective, if the interest rate on a credit card is 22% and the interest rate that you get on a savings account is 0.2% or, you know, some, some fraction of 1%, obviously it's, uh, the economic return to paying down that high interest loan is, is much better than, than putting money in a bank account. However, um, it's, it's certainly true that we don't want to ever encourage people not to pay their debt at all or to pay debt late uh, or to pay less than the minimum payment. But if they're at a point where they can make the minimum payment and a little bit more and they don't have a savings account of any kind, they don't have any kind of emergency savings of any kind, it might be worth saying, rather than making more than the minimum payment, assuming the minimum payment at least keeps you even, you're not sort of getting negative amortization, you're not dragging behind. But whatever that point is where you're sort of getting, so you're staying even, and if you have a little bit of money left, let's put some of that into an emergency fund. And this doesn't always, not everybody's on board with this plan, but having a little bit of money put aside while you're also paying down debt might give people more cushion if the emergency happens. It also gives them a platform to begin planning and thinking about the future. And so, again, I don't want to say save before you pay off debt. That's not the, that's not the point. It's, if you don't have an emergency fund and you can make the minimums plus a little bit more, uh, paying off, uh, the debt might become a secondary priority to beginning to build a little bit of emergency fund. You know, maybe once you have $500 or $1,000 in the emergency fund, then shift focus into just paying down the debt, try to catch up there. But it's, it's always dangerous to have no cushion. Uh, and we want to, you know, sometimes even though it may seem contrary to what we think about from a sort of pure finance or economics perspective, it might make sense to do some saving and paying back loans at the same time. And in fact, if you, if you look at what people really do, they tend to do that. They tend to sort of compartmentalize or, um, you know, do sort of this mental accounting of, of their income and expenses and they say, okay, this money I'm going to put aside for an emergency and this money I'm going to put aside for paying off debt or trying to catch up on debt. And, you know, people kind of do, effectively do engage in this. Um, but again, it, it's not always clear if you look at some of the financial literacy curricula or guidebooks, those kinds of things out there, um, that this sort of dual approach is, is always uh, promoted as being a viable strategy. Um, the next thing that um, we want to try to help families think about as they think about emergency savings is what are some of those actually pretty predictable but variable expenses that you face? Um, so utilities is, is a classic one. Everybody knows, at least in Wisconsin, it gets cold in the winter and utility bills go up. Uh, transportation costs. We know when the cost of gas goes up you're going to pay more for transportation. Um, clothing tends to be kind of cyclical as well. When the fall comes, if you have kids or, you know, you yourself have to get different clothes or to adapt to the change in the weather or to the fact that the clothes that you have were worn out, um, that's going to be a lumpy expense that's going to come along. Um, taxes, whether it's income taxes and owing around this time of year or property taxes and whatever property tax cycle you might be in if you're a homeowner um, or a small business owner. Um, those are going to come around. Um, healthcare costs, another example of even if you're insured, there are some lumpy expenses when you um, actually seek medical services and have to pay co-pays or pay for prescriptions or um, other kinds of expenses that might be associated with that. Those can be high. And, you know, we can help people to think about what these variable 
scenarios are. Um, and one way to think about this is have people do a budget, and that's kind of the baseline budget. And now walk them through a shock. You know, impose upon them a $2,000 medical bill or a uh, utility bill doubling for three months in a row. Um, and so do those sort of what-if scenarios and then have families think about what would they do? All right, we could borrow, but we can't borrow enough to be able to make ends meet. How will we catch up in this situation? Gee, it would be a lot easier to catch up if at least some of that cost we could take from an emergency savings account. And so these scenarios of, you know, what if that expense doubled or what if income dropped by a little bit can help families to begin to think about these actually relatively predictable, in the grand scheme of things, relatively predictable um, patterns that occur, particularly with variable expenses in a budget. Um, you know, we particularly want to help families understand, too, the cost of not having an emergency fund, whether that means overdrafting uh, or it means using a payday loan or just going paycheck to paycheck and, and paying late sometimes. And what happens when you accumulate four or five of those late fees in a few months period is how much that starts to add up. You know, in essence, you're paying a whole extra payment a year because of the late fees that might be accumulating and that that emergency savings account may have given you the cushion of the liquidity to get through and not face that particular cost. Um, So the next thing, if if we get to the point where people are convinced that this might be a good idea, they've seen what happens if they don't have some cushion, is how do they get started in savings? And as we all know, the easiest time to start saving is tomorrow, not today. And so getting people to think about not just this is a good idea and someday I should start an emergency savings account, but immediately how do I do it? What's what's the, the thing I can do to act today and not just get uh, into a cycle of procrastinating tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow? Um, one of the things we've talked about a lot in the past, and, and particularly in the coaching context, but it's this goal setting. I mean, having people set a goal of I need an emergency fund, it needs to be X by X date. I want to have $500 by June 1st. And then it becomes much easier to think about specific steps to get there. So $500 by June 1st, it gives me four months or three months. And all right, if I put aside, you know, $125 and maybe a little bit of my tax refund, I can get there. And, you know, once we start to make, make it concrete and plan out steps, then things like even smaller deposits or weekly contributions, um, you know, planning ahead for how a tax refund or other uh, lumpy income source or revenue might come in uh, might be a way to start thinking about that. You don't want to encourage people to set goals that are crazy, though, either. Like, I'm going to, I mean, three months savings, three months of income just might be too aggressive. I mean, it might be, you know, six or $7,000, and families just say, there's no way I'm going to be able to come up with, with that much money uh, to have three months savings. Um, put aside. So, you know, starting with more attainable goals that are a stretch but aren't um, so aggressive that they're going to fail uh, can be one important approach. The uh, National Foundation for Consumer Credit Counseling has promoted a, a campaign of $20 a week, which for a lot of people feels um, achievable. It's a $20 bill. It's, you know, it's um, something that they could put aside in an account or they could put aside in a coffee can. <laughs> But over the course of a year, it'll, you know, accumulate more than $1,000. And if they just, you know, commit to that every week, no matter what, then they'll always have some 
cycle of building up these funds, and then that money's available when it needs to be. And a thousand dollars, from from what we see in survey data, oftentimes is a good threshold. That most expenses, these unpredictable expenses, these high utility bills or car repair, or even some of the medical, you know, more minor medical expenses for the for the insured, um, tend to be under a thousand dollars. And so, you know, if people can stick with that plan and start to build up that kind of cushion, it would help them to address the majority of the of the issues that might come up for them. Um, in terms of thinking about the budget, I included a link from the National Foundation for Consumer Credit to their monthly income worksheet. There's a million worksheets out there. I know many of you probably already have established worksheets to be able to work with clients on, on their budgeting. I just share it because it's online, and so it's a tool that you could work with on a computer at your desk or on an iPad or a laptop or a tablet of some kind where, you know, it's got about 25 different um, places that you can enter both income and expenses, and it has most of the major categories of expenses. Um, it does talk about fixed versus variable expenses, which really gets at um, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about today of, you know, what if something goes wrong or this this goes up or that goes up. Um, it's quite detailed. It's probably more detailed than I would uh, want to sit through as a client because it, you know, gets into postage and things like that that are probably more detailed than a lot of people want to ponder. Um, but anyway, what's nice about it is at the end you can print it. You can click print and it creates a a, a format that um, you know you can hand out to somebody and, and they can um, come back to look at later on the same one too. So I just share that as a, as a nice uh, online tool that's available. Um, so getting back to the um, goal setting, you know, one of the things that's important about goal setting is it's easy to make a plan. It's harder to stick to it. And so um, helping people realize that it's normal to not follow through with things and to anticipate the fact that you're going to struggle to follow through and then talking with, to them about tricks to encourage themselves to stick to their plan. And so this could be um, particularly using peer pressure, you know, letting people know that you have a savings account goal uh, or an emergency savings goal. This could be important for a bunch of reasons, including, you know, now you're going to feel like you have to report back to your, to your, you know, peer network or to your, you know, sister or whoever else that you're doing what you said. But it also communicates to them, hey, I'm trying to put some money away for an emergency, and if you want to do something um, that requires me spending money in the short run, you know, you want me to chip on on a gift or you want me to go do something uh, that costs money, I may have to say no, uh, and so it, it helps. You know, sort of level that playing field a little bit. And sometimes that's hard for people to be able to say no to their peer network or to their friends and family. And so, um, so now at least there's some context for when you say, no, I can't do it because of the money. Um, can we do something else together that doesn't cost that kind of money? And so, uh, making it public helps from a couple of reasons, both, uh, for the monitoring aspect of it and also for the, um, ability to stick to the plan and, and not get sidetracked by expenses that might come up from that network. Um, another thing, we, and when everybody has heard this before, but this idea of pay yourself first, that you think of the payment to the emergency fund just like any other bill, that you have to write a check to that first. Um, as soon as you get paid, you pay all your bills, and then you put the $20 or whatever it is into your, to your emergency account, just like any other bill or responsibility that you have every month. And it doesn't matter if you just tap the fund or not. You still have to keep refunding the fund once you spend it down. And that's the thing is we expect these funds to get exhausted, to be uh, accumulating and then decumulating 
uh, funds over time as because we know emergencies are going to happen. And so we don't want to ding somebody because they spent their account. The point is they have the account, and that's what helps them get by. Um, another issue to think about with these emergency funds is we talk a lot about liquidity and that you want people to have access to these funds when an emergency happens. But you don't want to make the funds so liquid that they can tap it for non-emergencies. So the problem with the coffee, coffee can emergency fund is that it's pretty easy to dip your hand into the coffee can and spend it on coffee or, you know, some other extravagance. Um, and we want to make the funds sort of accessible in a short time, within a day or two or three, but not so easy to get that you can get them anytime, um, whenever the, the urge hits. And in some ways, that's what the savings account is useful for, even if it doesn't have a great rate of return, is that you have to get there, you have to fill out a slip, you have to take the money out, and so there's some barrier to having the money immediately accessible. Um, savings bonds are actually another way. You can cash a savings bond out before it's, uh, before it's reached its maturity, uh, but you have to go to a financial institution to do it. Um, if it's at least a year old, there's no penalty necessarily for paying for cashing that out, but it's, again, it's a little less liquid and it forces you to, to take some steps to tap that money. Um, yeah, there are other ways to put money aside, um, you know, whether it's an account. Uh, in some cases, there's, um, for people who use prepaid cards and they have um, stored value cards, perhaps like a payroll card, they can put money um, into what the, some of the companies call a purse sort of a segregated part of their card where they have to move money back and forth. But if they, let's say they have $1,000 on their card overall, but 200 is in their purse, once they spend $800, the card comes back and says, hey, your balance is zero. Um, if you want to spend more money, you have to put more deposit in, or you have to move it from the purse over into the main account. So it's just a way of segregating funds into like a savings pocket um, so that, that people can manage, even if they don't have a bank account, but they have a card of some kind, they can do that uh, either online or on their phone. In some cases, they can just text to transfer money from, from the pocket or the purse um, to one place to another. Um, now, there's there's obviously lots of other options we can think about in terms of how people could could store money. Um, you know, safes are one option, safes with a key that somebody else keeps. Um, you know, there's uh, I've heard people say that they have two savings accounts, one with a bank across town, Bank of Credit Union across town, and so that's their emergency savings because it's a little bit harder to get to than the one that's in the neighborhood. Um, so there's lots of creative ways, and it's really just kind of meeting people where they're at. There's there's some literature in economics that even talks about this and the fact that um, you know there are some constraints that we like to put on ourselves. And there's the you know the story of of Odysseus in in the Odyssey in, in Greek mythology. Of, you know, he, he knew the sirens were going to be calling him towards the rocks, so he had his crew tie him to the mast and, and uh, you know, try to prevent him from steering the ship into the rocks. And so we know that we're going to have temptations to spend. We know that um, we have these behavioral failings, and we can be aware of that, and we can begin to take steps so that, that we don't get trapped into those, um, those predictable patterns or biases that seem to tend to come up. Uh, last thing I would say in terms of strategies that's appropriate to this time of year is that tax refunds can be a way to really invigorate or reinvigorate a savings for emergencies. Um, you know, the typical tax refund for a family who's working and has a couple of kids might be $1,500 or $2,000. 
and taking 500 or $600 of that and putting it aside into um, some sort of an emergency pool, either in an account or um, in some other way can be a way to, um, to, to have some money that's, that's really available for a contingency in the future. Um, it is possible to buy a savings bond actually at tax time through a form called the 8888, so it's four dates in a row. Um, but the form 888 allows you to split your refund between um, whatever you might want to have deposited into your account or onto one of the express cards as well as onto a savings bond directly. It's one of the few ways you could buy a, a savings bond directly uh, and, and quite easily just by filling out some paperwork. Um, so that's that's something that many VITA programs or the volunteer tax assistance programs do. Uh, and most professionals do it, and actually you can even do it using the online software as well and, and split your refund between some savings and some deposit into an account that you would use for consumption. Um, there are other forms of unexpected income besides tax refunds. Um, you know, sometimes if you get a bonus or some, you know, other kinds of, um, you know, little bump in income for a month or two uh, or a lump sum that might come along, those can be used to set up that emergency fund as well. So this is a rich topic. I've really just um, scratched the surface a little bit here today, and I know probably lots of you have had experiences working with families who have been in situations where they didn't have any emergency savings and were trying to figure out it's hard I and mean, trying to figure out how they could start to set up an emergency savings and how do they balance paying off debt because so often debt is such a, a stressful thing in people's lives and how do we how do we balance all these things? So you probably have some stories you can share about how you've taught this topic of emergency savings and. Uh, how you do, how you really help families think about emergency savings is distinct from savings for education or savings for retirement or savings for some other kind of use. Um, you know, I think one of the key things that educators can do is, you know, when we talk about budgeting or spending plans, these kinds of things, they can get kind of dry. Um, you know, we, we think about the ideal, the idealized spending plan. Um, but we can actually help families think about, well, what has ever happened to you that's derailed you from that plan? And what if that happened now? And do some what-if kind of scenarios if, if income drops or if expenses double uh, in some category. And, you know, it might help them start to realize that, you know, geez, even though I do have debt, putting aside some money for a cushion uh, might be a really important activity. And so maybe that is a goal I want to engage in and, and start to do some, some, uh, some work around setting goals and achieving goals in that area. So I'll stop there. Uh, I'm open to any questions that folks have, and then I'll also uh, eager to hear if, if anybody has good ideas on um, education strategies or tools or techniques that you've had good luck with in working with clients on this topic. A strategy that uh, I learned about last summer and then put into practice that I'm finding successful is uh, every dollar bill that I get, I take a look at it, and if the... Uh, uh, they've all got numbers on them, obviously, but if uh, it begins with a 3, 6, 9, or 12, then I can't spend that dollar. And it's surprising uh, how guilty a person feels whenever they pull a dollar out and check that uh, serial n- or number on there uh, and think about putting it down um, to pay for something. And it's also surprising how quickly that amount of money adds up. And they don't have to use a three. You know, they could use any number divisible by two or whatever they want. 
That's a great, uh, great one. I hadn't heard that one before, but I like it a lot. I mean, it's also very tangible, and and you can imagine it working with, uh, you know, all kinds of different population groups that you'd be working with. Thanks for that. Other feedback or examples that folks have to share? Um, hi, Michael. This is Peggy in Richmond. So, the Extension had a webinar gosh, maybe a few weeks or a month ago, and they cited one research that said, um, that looked at savers and said savers were more likely to have success if they just focused on one goal at a time. Um, and again, it was just one study, and I was trying to look for it, and I couldn't find it offhand. But I'm wondering what you might know just off offhand about um, saving success and numbers of goals. Yeah, no, um there's been a lot of research on how people think about achieving, well, both making goals and then this whole concept of, uh, sort of implementation intentions. How, um, how seriously do they take the steps that are required to, to achieve that goal? Um, and then ultimately how they end up performing in that goal. And then, you know, these, this research is not just in the financial context, it's also in exercise and nutrition, you know, different, different, um, domains. Of behavior besides just the financial behavior. And I think one of the common themes with all this is having a goal and then making it specific and making it, um, sort of in bite-sized chunks that are achievable and also having it time-bound seem to be really, the precision really seems to matter a lot. And, you know, you can imagine where if you have four or five goals and then you've got under the precision of, of each of the steps that might be involved in, in, uh, trying to achieve that goal, it could become pretty overwhelming. And people do definitely get depleted or fatigued, you know, sort of in the mental processes of this, let alone the, uh, you know, the sort of stress or the other uh, anxiety aspects of these kinds of things. So certainly, um, you know, I think across different studies in different domains, the, the more people can be precise about a goal and steps uh, towards that goal, uh, you know, the, the better off they're going to be as opposed to having, you know, 15 goals and and then end up doing none of them. Um, you know, obviously it depends upon the individual and, and the context in which they're in. And, you know, some people may be in a place where they can take on and, you know, multitask on goals. But a lot of people when they're in these situations have struggled with goals in so many different areas that typically they just have to, to pick one thing and, and try to do it. Okay, thanks. Other questions or examples of um, techniques you've used with clients on this topic? The people are being quiet or polite. All right, I will assume we've exhausted the topic. Um, but do, I do thank you both for your uh, comments and questions. So I want to just do a quick plug um, for two things. We're getting near the end of the spring and the end of the lunchtime learning uh, calendar. So we our last call is in May, on May 19th. And for that last call, we're going to talk about, just like we did last year, sort of what are some things to read over the summer. So books around personal finance or books around financial education. And so what I'll be looking for in the next uh, six weeks or so are for volunteers who um, there's a book that you're interested in reading or a book that you've read that you're willing to talk about just for a few minutes, um, and we'll share those. I, you typically want to share four or five or six 
folks with colleagues that they have some reading lists available to them if they want to try to catch up on. Of course, that's what you want to do on your summer vacation is read about the things that you teach in class. But uh, it does provide a, a context for us to begin to explore what sort of new things are out there, whether it's around goal setting or financial education in general. So um, be thinking about that, thinking about books that you'd be interested in sharing or having me share with others, uh, and just send me an email on that. That's May. So April 21st is our next call. We're going to talk about credit scores, um, which is probably the most frequent question I get from, from you all and from the general public is credit score versus credit report, and then how do I get that credit score up, and why is my credit score showing up on my credit my uh, credit card bill all of a sudden, like other kinds of things that we're seeing out there. So we'll talk about um, credit scores and some techniques for improving credit scores, specifically some of the, the uh, savings and other kinds of products that are out there, too, that, that credit builder kind of loans that people can get to, to begin to build up credit scores. So um, that will be on March 21st, so I hope that you'll tune in then. And thanks very much for being with me today, and have a great week.